0: All right. All right. Well, welcome back to the Infused Influence Show. I am your host, as always, Harry, here with my host, uh, with my co-host, uh, Ulysses Youngblood. And uh, as always, we let Ulysses uh, introduce the guest, and uh, Ulysses do your thing.
1: Absolutely. So today we have a special, special guest. It's definitely an honor to have a leader in the cannabis space. And um, you know, basically just someone who supports our social equity in the space, and someone who's a young go-getter, I mean, we see, and it's very common around the space uh, for people to, especially in political uh, positions to be a little bit disconnected from what's really happening. And I felt like this guest that we have today has been very connected to, the cannabis community and what's going on with uh, politics and regulations, not only here in Massachusetts but across the nation. Yeah. So we have uh, ex Commissioner Shalene Title with us today. Shalene, how are you?
2: Thanks so much for having me. I'm a big fan of yours. A big fan of Major Bloom, um, and I really appreciate everything that you do to keep the community informed. And thank you for saying that about how I try to um, stay connected because that really has been a top focus of mine. So I
1: appreciate that. Oh, no, and it's not a try. You are you are doing it for sure. <laughs> and I think, yeah, I mean, that's the special part about, you know, what you do is, um, you know, just being connected to the community, but also just being, knowing how to, to navigate the regulations. So that I think that's one of my top questions is that, you know, you're a cannabis attorney. Um, so how, how did you get into cannabis? Right. And then like, what was your role like with the CCC? I'm sure that the, the audience would love to hear more about that.
2: Sure. So I first started about 20 years ago as a college student, and, um, it was very simple. I didn't feel I was a kind am a cannabis user. I didn't feel that it was fair. Um, and, Over time, I learned what an important issue it was uh, in terms of criminal justice, in terms of the opportunity to regulate a whole new industry uh, correctly and right. And so um, I was involved in a lot of the first campaigns to legalize cannabis in other states. And what we saw from the first states was that um, we were stopping the arrests. But the industry was looking like other industries in terms of being dominated by a few uh, big white-owned companies. Um, And that seemed especially unfair given the history of the drug war. So I was working on trying to uh, make sure that Massachusetts law would be different when I was tapped to apply to be one of the first commissioners in Massachusetts and help implement our legal marijuana program here. So I've done that from 2017 to 2020.
0: Word, word, word. Um, so, what has been your involvement? I know that you're an ex commissioner. What was that like doing that that role, and how did you, you know, make it a little bit less of a disparity when it came to the bigger companies and you know the mom and pop shops like us here?
2: Well, it was a huge opportunity, you know, to get to do something for the first time. In the same way that. Um, Major Bloom and others have been pioneers, you know, opening some of the first stores for us as regulators. um, You know, I just couldn't say no to that opportunity because you do something once, right? And it's like, it's going to stay that way for a hundred years unless somebody specifically goes and changes it, you know, which is a lot more work. So in that way, it was exciting. It was also, I would say... um, quite awful and dramatic, honestly, because I was one of five commissioners. I was the only person of color. I was the only one who voted yes on legalizing cannabis. Um, And I was the youngest. And so it was a very difficult position to be in. Um, And I also found that after feeling like tokenized the first few months, I became very vocal in the media and on social media And that did get kind of um, the change and attention that I wanted, but it also made the work like pretty tense. Um, So with all of that background, I think that we did do a really great job making sure that racial justice is at the center of the conversation when we're talking about implementing marijuana legalization in Massachusetts and nationally um, as it should be. And we are starting to move from the generalities to uh, the concrete specifics, and the feedback that we're getting from people like you, so that as we work in you know states like New York that are just starting out, and as we're working on federal legalization, that we're able to make a lot of improvements. You know, and the big ones are making sure people have access to capital, making sure people have access to property, and trying to um, make the barriers more evidence-based and when i say barriers i mean things like the security that you need do you really need you know multiple cameras on one plant things like that um when we make them more evidence-based and not just fear-based um then we make the whole thing more affordable and accessible
0: um so i just had a quick follow-up so you talked a little bit about how you um you know Made some noise in the media and social media. Um, I happened to watch one of the videos. I think you did with uh, uh, Channel Five. It was one of the one of the more local channels around here, um, and when it was in 2019, and at that point they had said there was no black-owned um, dispensaries at the time. So from that interview in 2019, or from 2019 in general. How different has the landscape looked, in your opinion, and how far do we have to go?
2: So, you know, from my perspective, every Black-owned store that has opened is a huge victory, you know, especially knowing all of the obstacles that you've each had to overcome. Uh, So I think since then, um, for me, we've made a lot of progress, you know, just knowing how hard fought it is to have, you know, now a whole group, um, but of course, not not enough. You know, nationally, four percent of marijuana stores are black owned. You know, and I'm, I imagine it's a, it's similar. You know, in Massachusetts. Um, but I think the good thing is we have now five years of data where we can talk about what the barriers are, but also what has been helpful. And I think that creates more of a path for the current commissioners and the current of activists to know exactly what they're advocating for. Um, I think that what we've done with delivery uh, has been a huge step forward, just allowing uh, social equity program participants um, to be the only ones with delivery for at least three years. Now we have a path forward, perhaps we can do that with other types of licenses or perhaps we can do that you know, in, in different states. Um, And so it's a combination of continuing to try um, new things and also making sure we improve and stick with what's working.
1: Yeah, I just want to interject on this delivery stuff. Man, it's been difficult. I'm going to tell you, and I I say this because our inspector calling me just looking for more stuff. And I'm like, I sometimes feel like you guys don't want this to happen, like what you're looking for, especially knowing the inconsistencies and some of the other people who are in the equity program and like what they have to go through. It's not consistent. So like, you know, and I don't think it's just exclusive to delivery, but like, you know, I'm thinking about just the consistency across the board of just licensing in general. Um, I don't want to go on a tangent, but I'm like, you know, what are ways that even though we moved the needle, like how can we still improve? Like in your opinion, especially being inside the commission for you know three and a half years.
2: Yeah, that's really interesting. I think um, one of the concerns I always had as a commissioner was that, I felt there was conditions that could lead to a lack of consistency. Namely, you know, if I asked a question about something that wasn't uh, in a regulation, you know, I didn't have ready access to um, Mm. a written consistent way, you know, that, that it would be enforced. Mm. And of course that does lead to inconsistency and that leads to typically uh, inequitable enforcement, you know, and, and it just happens that things tend to be, um, inequitably enforced against people who have less resources, you know, and it's not as easy for them to uh, deal with it. So it is an equity issue to talk about inconsistency. Absolutely. So I'm glad you bring that up. I think in addition to participating in uh, feedback processes and regulatory processes, um, it's very helpful to form peer associations, you know, and I'm sure you can give examples of this, where you've been through it once and you help others, um, so that they know what to expect. And it's almost like you're um, yeah. addressing that inconsistency yourself.
1: Yeah, no, that's great. I mean, that's every day at this point. It took us four years to get here. It shouldn't take the next four and a half, maybe even more. shouldn't take the next equity business that long. You know what I mean, just given the experience here. So I love I love that point because I say that to people all the time. We all share experiences
0: and that's important for sure. Mm-hmm. Um. So I happen to just, you know, I do a little bit of research on everyone. <laughs> um, you happen to be the CEO of a company, I don't want to say it wrong, Parabola Center? Parabola Center. Okay, see, I knew I was going to mess it up. I knew I mess it
2: up. <laughs> Everybody um, says Parabola.
0: <laughs> we try, them, we're good. <laughs> Um, Can you please explain to uh, explain to us what that is and your role in the company?
2: Yeah. So it's a nonprofit. I started last year when I left the commission, the first thing that I wanted to do was just write down, you know, everything that I had in my head that I thought could be helpful. So I partnered with the Ohio state university drug enforcement and policy center. And I wrote a paper with them on social equity. That's 10 pages. It's really concrete and practical. And um, it's meant for anybody who cares about social equity to just understand um, without needing all of the historical context, just like, what do you need to know right now? And, and what can we do that's helpful? Um, and so people can find that on my website, com. But then I also felt that in addition to like academic papers, I wanted some room to, um, I guess, be experimental in my thinking, because I feel like up until now, states are really copying off each other. And we have so many totally arbitrary rules like states that have home grow, you can grow six or 12 plants usually. And that's just something that, you know, someone made up 10 years ago, you know, and we've just stuck with it or we've been reactive. So the purpose of Parabola Center is it's a drug policy focused think tank. It's definitely equity and justice centered, um, but it's an opportunity to come up with new ideas. Um, For example, Congress could potentially only allow marijuana businesses to be worker-owned cooperatives, for example. You know, there's so many ideas that we haven't even begun to scratch the surface of uh, to make this a better industry. And um, the other thing that I want to point out about Parabola Center is that I do feel a lot of the thinking now uh, in marijuana uh, policy tends to be supported by the same um, kind of Bloated interest groups, in my opinion. So you don't see a lot of independent thinking, um, and so this is run by very small donations, and uh, it's really focused on people and not corporate profit. Uh, corporate, yeah, corporate profits and and corporate benefits. Um, it's run by people of color. It's run by lawyers. Um, me and my co-founder both have. Um, governmental experience and a long history in drug policy. So you can find all of our work available free for the public at preblesscenter.com.
1: I have a a question. As I was listening to you talk about this subject and then another topic before, I'm just curious, like where did this all come from for you? (laughs) Like what, like someone like me, like I got in trouble for cannabis in college. You know what I mean? And like, but before that I have three older sisters, they all love weed. So for me it's part of like the culture and inherent on what's going on. I mean, I wasn't drastically punished for it, but it was enough for my mom to be worried, right? But like <laughs> someone like you, like what, what is the motivation? Like how where does this all come from for you to do this work?
2: <laughs> Not too different. I think it's like a rebellious spirit, you know, and and using cannabis and finding it unfair that people could be arrested for it. Mm. Um and also, you know, it's really motivating when you have wins you know and you can celebrate those wins and also this movement it was very respectful of young people when i got involved you know so you had the opportunity to fight for something to see really quick progress and make a change like that's honestly my kind of theory of change in general no matter what it is that you're working on Of course, you should know what you're talking about. And of course, you should understand, you know, the system that you're trying to change. But if you have fun and you celebrate your small wins, people are going to come back and keep working with you. I kind of think that's the most important thing. So that's kind of what kept me in it was just how much fun I was having.
1: Mm, No, that's, that's great. And just talk about the small wins. I love that. Without a doubt. What are some of the challenges that you ran into in all your experience, even with the CCC? The biggest
2: uh, <laughs> big resistance to change for mm-hmm. sure um, within government because the government just has this inertia that um, you want to do the least possible and mm-hmm. particularly in Massachusetts. So I don't know how much you talk about um, Massachusetts specific politics on your show um, but I feel like it's very unique to Massachusetts that we have this total lack of transparency in our state government, even though, you know, we're seen as really progressive, um, our state house is is quite dysfunctional. So that was a major challenge for us. Um, I think it was really hard to watch, you know, in 2016, we had this groundbreaking law. We were the first ones to pass a statewide equity mandate And then, you know, over the next five years, we're watching Illinois and, you know, all these like states that are not considered to be as progressive as us. They have loan funds. They are their governors are expunging, you know, thousands of convictions at a time. And we're still here, like stuck in 2015. That was a big, big challenge to just not see us, you know, catching up with other states. And it's really it's really tough when the legislature and the governor are very like anti-cannabis frankly
0: yeah i mean i think it's extremely important what you do and your center does in general um me myself i'm extremely like i just got into the industry when i started working here um and i kind of i mean for especially the location that we're in we really see a lot of the different side of the city that i grew up in um, which really kind of moved me to really do like more exposure clinics that we're trying to organize I mean, trying to do my first one I ever did in my life. So I'm trying to figure that out. What is some advice you would say to someone like me or somebody else who has the passion to try to help people that's been marginalized by this um, with expungement clinics and stuff like that?
2: I love that question. I mean, you're doing it. Um, I know I've seen people who um, come from the community do way more successful expungement clinics and the like than those that are Um, you know, funded really well, or, you know, have a ton of lawyers, because the most important thing is the outreach. If people don't show up and people don't have that um, trust, you know, to come to the event and that, you know, you're there to do something useful, um, then there's no point. So I think a little bit going back to my last answer, I think if you can make the event fun, you know, and make people show up who otherwise wouldn't, that is really helpful. And then you can get, have a sense of like people wanting to come back and wanting to get involved in what you're working on. Um, And then also, you know, partnerships are really important. I think um, there's a lot of great companies that are always willing to sponsor those types of events. Um, we did a lot of work at the commission to additionally incentivize them by making sure that if you're a business, if you're a cannabis business in Massachusetts, you have to be doing something that has a positive impact on um, disproportionately harmed communities. So, you know, a bunch of, of businesses teaming up together um, is helpful. Uh, what do you think are the most, um, what advice would you give to someone who's doing that for the first time?
0: Um, I would say make sure you have the right people with you, a a team of people who are actually going to help you get it it through. Um, I'm still, you know, at this point trying to find the lawyers because, I mean, I only know so many people at this point. But, I mean, just make sure you have the right plan. I mean, for me, the plan for me is to also be able to help give education on the social equity program. Um, I didn't know about it until I started working here. Even when I started working here, I didn't really understand until I was in it every single day. Um, And I feel like the information is there, but it's kind of, I don't want to say it's hidden, but it's not easily accessible to everyone. Um, So that's kind of where I want to go with it. Cause I mean, if you really, if you really have passion for cannabis and you're good at it, you should have the same opportunities as anybody else who can easily find the information.
2: Yeah, that's really good feedback. I think it's helpful to, um, as you said, to try and do more than one thing with each event, uh, because while people are there, if you can give them information about things, they information that they don't even know that they need, you know, that should keep them coming back as well.
0: I mean, so where do you think that, how, how do you think is the best way to help people find that information? Cause I mean, I, um, did like a, I did like an application here for like, a, you know, social equity program stuff like that. Um, knowing like the cutoff dates, where can people find that and how can we make it more accessible?
2: So the original source of the information um, in this state is masscannabiscontrol.com. But I think um, what's really useful and my favorite thing about a lot of the community groups is that they have the Ability to really translate that information. And actually, you know, government agencies, um, they're very limited in how they can disseminate information because it has to always be in like this perfect legalese and it always has to be, you know, sent out in a way that's fair where you can't be accused of, you know, being you know, favoring one community over another. And so agencies, I just learned this when I was at the commission, they're really dependent and they want nonprofits to kind of like translate that information and make it more digestible um, and put it out there. So one of of my favorites locally is Equitable Opportunities Now. That's a group that I co-founded in 2016 or so. Um, That's a good place to go. Mass Recreational Consumer Council as well. Um, Elevate New England um, is a women-run organization that does a great job disseminating information from the commission. Um, you, you guys probably have more that you'd add.
0: Um, I mean, a lot of the ones that you said, that's the ones I look at. I I know that the uh, CCC in general has just been able to. I mean, I looked on. I saw on LinkedIn that they're actually um making it accessible on their website to be able to see those type of things so that's some of the stuff that i look at myself
2: yeah and actually they are hiring i think a media producer or something so if people are interested they should look at um the commission's website and i hope that means that they'll be putting out information in, in different types of mediums as well
0: um i actually had a, another question from so i i mean i was on linkedin i since because i work here and we, re- we post everything cannabis. I see a lot of cannabis stuff. Um, I happen to see an article of someone talking about how, I don't want to say damaging, but um, environmentally unfriendly it is for our um, containers, for our pre-rolls and um, just all of the containers that you know contain the cannabis in general. Packaging. Um, yeah. The packaging and everything is yeah. very excessive. Yeah. Um, can you kind of explain the reasoning behind that? And if there will ever be a change, because I don't see it that difficult in, in, you know, other industries, alcohol, for example.
2: Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's really excessive. It's like when you, um, when you get takeout and it's like in foil and then it's in styrofoam and then it's in a paper (laughs) bag. It's like, you don't need to have all of these different layers. And I would say um, at the beginning, I talked about fear-based regulations. I think that Um, that definitely plays into how environmentally unfriendly the marijuana regulations are because, um, you know, they want it to be child proof, they want it to be, you know, labeled um with, you know, you guys know these like <laughs> very, very long excessive labels. <laughs> and so yeah, that that really just brings uh environmental concerns, unfortunately, to the bottom of the list. And my sense is that over time, you know, that'll get changed. I hope now that we have all of this data that shows that um, you know, those things aren't necessarily needed. But It's a it's a really it's a really tough one. Right. Because nobody wants to be the decision maker who says, oh, actually, I don't want, you know, this to be childproof. And then, you know, they're going to feel responsible if there's an incident. So that is quite political, unfortunately.
1: Mm -hmm. It seems especially going to the packaging that some of it makes sense. Right. Like child resistant on edibles. Kind of makes sense. Yeah, that, that,
0: no, that's a fact. That's a fact.
1: Yeah. That's, well, that's flour, flour, if a child eats a, a flour, you know what I'm saying? Like, what's the point behind putting that pre-roll in a, in a child-resistant tube? You know what I mean? So, like, you know, that kind of leads to a question of, like, obviously it's a state regulation. And aside from environmental, is there any state that is doing kind of cannabis regulation the like leading the right the right way you know what I mean and and it's all in its entirety in your opinion truly you think
2: (laughs) uh no (laughs) there's unfortunately with every issue there's like little things that everybody's doing right you know so when you look at equity we actually did I think a good job people have a lot of complaints about um how the limit of three stores or three of each types of license Mm -hmm. uh, per person, how that limit is enforced. But I think it's actually uh, much better in Massachusetts than anywhere else. Um, Illinois has an excellent um, fund Mm -hmm. for both financing for social equity businesses, but also um, giving grants to disproportionately harmed communities. People in Illinois have a lot of complaints about that as well. It's funny how that works. Mm. But I think, um, you know, there's no one state. You just have to, like, kind of take elements from each one. Also, Massachusetts is actually a leader, believe it or not, in environmental regulations because other states are actually much worse. Um, as you as you know, we require um, in the manufacturing and cultivation, uh, our environmental regulations are actually more stringent um, than most states.
1: Mm. That's on the... That's on the- growing side, uh, uh, basically power consumption as opposed to packaging. (laughs) Exactly, exactly.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, I just had a question. Is there any way, so I mean, a couple of us were talking about this the other day because we kind of had the same kind of conversation Um, and we were trying to see if there's any way to kind of be able to have the customers return some of the packaging and like recycle Mm -hmm. them. It's a business model, bro. (laughs) Is Is that, is that, is that, People people do that? Is that a possible? I never I mean we never did it, so I don't know if that's even a thing. Yeah. I've never seen anybody do it.
2: Um yeah, you you know, can do I, it. I don't I don't know off the top of my head. I mean, it seems like a very good idea on instinct, yes. but you never know with the commission. I mean, <laughs> I mean honestly, I mean, like they will take <laughs> they'll take the best idea in the world yeah. and find a reason to say why it's not allowed.
1: Well, so, I mean, I'll tell, tell you. Sure we work we work with the company uh like the pre-packs the chillums yep you know, and we had discussed are you familiar with those shaley no so they're little like multi-hitter chillums almost like a little bong but they're i mean gla- i know what
2: a chillum is but not that particular
1: one yeah yeah so they're glass and essentially um you yeah, know we had dabbled with the idea because we do have a, we have a dishwasher here collecting those as long as they don't have cannabis in it right because you're not supposed to have open containers well, you're right, Harry. No one has done that. I think they're well, having
0: ideas around. Well, with. that's what I'm saying. You said the open container thing. Can the customer actually walk back in here? As long put, as there's no cannabis in it. Okay, so, long no can. Okay, so I think that's what the, what the question probably would surround Bob. Right? right, right. Okay, okay. That well, that, that's that's so.
1: a business model, bro. That's okay. No, I didn't know. That, <laughs> that
0: makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, well, yeah. that's
2: why I was hesitating because that came up when we had our social consumption working group and we were <laughs> talking about if we. If we served in the cannabis cafe, one serving, um, and we didn't want to do it in disposable containers, all the issues that would come up with um, reusing glass or reusing even you know plates, people had concerns about. I don't. I didn't even fully understand the concerns, but that's why I hesitated because I pictured something like that coming up.
1: Yeah, no, well, no, that makes sense. So you, you brought up social consumption. Um, I, I kind of want to go back. Cause you know a lot, and this always happens with conversations with people who are high level with <laughs> cannabis. But like, just for the audience, you know, remembering, you know, this radio show, they might not be as well versed. Can you, do you mind explaining like what the social equity program is, what the positive impact plans are, and diversity plan, and where that came from, basically?
2: Absolutely. So taking a step back, uh, social equity in general is the way that we define the goal in Massachusetts to make sure that those communities that were harmed by the prohibition of marijuana, namely black and brown communities and geographic areas as well, that people from those communities um, are benefited by legalization, um, given all of the targeted harm that they suffered. So that's done in a few different ways under the formal social equity program, uh, either business ownership or workforce development. If you're looking for a job or um, management, if you're interested in progressing in your career, all of those things um, are taught in a series called the social equity program by vendors who work for the commission. And you can apply for that at masscannabiscontrol.com. You can qualify either through residing in a certain area that's been designated as disproportionately harmed or if you have a drug conviction or your parent or spouse has a drug conviction. So that's a social equity program. In addition, the commission requires that every cannabis business participates in this goal by having a plan to positively impact those communities. And so we allow for some flexibility and creativity in how they do that. Mm -hmm. Um, Many give donations to um, businesses with the same goals or charities. Um, Many hold their own expungement clinics. Many have mentorship programs um, to give those intangible benefits to other businesses that are going through um, the same process. And then we require that every business has a diversity plan as well, to make sure that people of color, women, LGBTQ uh, members of the community, people with disabilities um, are all included and welcomed into the industry as well.
1: That's amazing. So how does that differ from the diversity impact plan versus the positive impact plan? Because, yeah, it seems like sometimes they can be, you know what I mean? But obviously the state requires them as two separate things.
2: Great question. Right. So the difference there is whether we're talking about general diversity or if we're talking about specifically the communities that have been harmed for the drug war. For example, I'm a person of color. I am of Asian descent. I'm also a woman. So I come under these traditionally disadvantaged communities. I would be included in a diversity plan. However, neither of those groups have been disproportionately harmed by the drug war. I'm not Black. I'm not Latino. I'm not, you know, a young Black male that was pulled over. Those are the communities that positive impact plans are meant to benefit. And I think it's really important that we keep those separate and that we don't conflate them because we don't, I mean, diversity is important, but we don't want to mix things up by conflating the communities that have actually been harmed by the drug war, which are very specific communities. And we don't just bring in, you know, every marginalized, disadvantaged community into that concept of social equity and repair.
1: That's great, that's great. I appreciate you breaking that down because there's just so much, you know what I mean, to like even just dive through. And sometimes, you know, visiting these facilities, you might talk to you know bud tender or sales associate or someone that works in the cultivation they're like oh we're part of the equity program we're economic empowerment business they could be working for this facility for so long and they're like what's that (laughs) yeah
2: Yeah, actually every time i go to a dispensary i ask um you know what products do you have that are made by social equity businesses and you know they they rarely know what i'm talking about that's okay
1: So, even didn't die. I mean, almost like what Harriet said, he didn't know about it until we started working here. But that's because, you know, we fit into a certain criteria where we believe in that we preach, we preach, about you know, teach about it and share it,
0: share it with people. But I don't think that's the same sentiment around the industry for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll just ask the big question that I mean, I get all the time. What's it going to take to make this federal?
1: Ooh, make- she's a great person to ask this. That's why I Five years,
0: please. <laughs> all the experts have been saying five years. For
2: the last years. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. All right. So let me just take a step back, if I may. Um, so one thing I learned through my research this past year was that we all, myself included, have just kind of been assuming that federal legalization will either keep things the same or make them better um, for all of us who are consumers and in the industry. And I think we actually need to rethink that because my concern after reading through, actually reading through all of the bills that are on the table federally, after going through the implementation process in Massachusetts, is that the bills have not really thought through what the transition will look like and they haven't used the evidence from the past five years of state level legalization and if it if federal legalization passes, and we don't like what it looks like in five years there's nothing that we can do to undo it so i actually really caution people um, to be a lot more intentional about what federal legalization will look like. Um, and so to directly answer your question, I'm not as upset about how long it's going to take. I do think it's going to take a while. I think that we don't have 60 votes in the Senate. I think that you know after the midterms, it'll be even less likely than it is now. Um, So it's going to be quite some time before we see federal legalization, but I think we need that time to really write a proper bill that implements all of the lessons that we've learned. And in the meantime, we might see something intermediate, um, for example, the Safe Banking Act, uh, which would have let um, businesses work with banks that would create a safe harbor for banks and um, we can improve that and make it more equitable in the meantime. So that time before federal legalization will be very well spent and very needed in my opinion.
0: Yeah. The, the part about the banking is I feel like that's like the biggest thing because like people walk in here every single day with a credit card and you really want to buy cannabis and just can't. So if, I mean, I feel like that would be a small victory and I feel like, from what you're saying. And now it makes me feel concerned myself, um, getting the right people involved when making these laws would be the most important thing I really think. So
2: So for example, with banking, um, the safe banking bill was represented as something that would be this great kind of equalizer um, and that it would make commercial loans available um, for small local businesses and minority owned businesses who need it the most. But if you actually read the bill, it creates a safe harbor for banks. It does not um, create commercial lending opportunities. Um, And it doesn't do anything to create equity. Uh, In my opinion, having looked at what happened in Massachusetts, Mm -hmm. you know, um, I said earlier, my time on the commission was kind of traumatic. A lot of what people say when you go through, you know, something really serious like that is you come out of it with some kind of um, gift you know, for seeing things and, and maybe even like seeing something bad that's coming down the line. And I kind of feel like having been in government for three years, I have that now. And that's why I'm so stressed out about federal legalization Because I look at what happened in Massachusetts. I look at the Safe Banking Act and I can see it. I have this like vision to see that it is really going to help in so many ways the bigger companies who are fine now, who are not even asking for it and all the barriers that the smaller companies would have who would not be getting, say, commercial lending and banking? So we have to be very intentional in how we we um, write these bills because we're only going to get one chance to do it.
1: I mean, we we have a tough time getting loans from banks. When I say we, <laughs> but let alone we get marginalized for cannabis. So of course, you know, Safe Banking Act isn't written for those who have been harmed. But I, I've always been in the impression that like, the, it's just as fast as we wrote these stimulus checks we can figure out a way to get money to people who have been harmed by cannabis. Like it's not that yes. difficult, Like <laughs> you know what yes. I mean? Like this whole pandemic yeah. shut down our world, just focus on the problem and you can easily come up with a solution. So I, yes. I agree with you hundred percent when it comes to the Safe Banking Act, yeah. but it is the most important thing even before decriminalization, rescheduling it, you know, is to figure out how to reverse the harms. And, and you know, I, I mean, unfortunately we have to think about it monetarily. Just like you know, other states who have done social equity right with your grants and and loans of that sort. Um, so I I share that vision with you. And thank you for sharing that. And I was listening to you mentioned that it was traumatic. I did you hear her say that before, Harry? I didn't know she yeah. said it was traumatic. Yeah. I mean
0: I mean, look what we was thinking live, it. I mean, I'm glad to hear it though. I'm glad to hear it honestly. Right. <laughs> I love what
2: you said, Ulysses, though, about uh, focusing on the problem and then you find the solution. I think that's absolutely the key when we're thinking about federal legalization is to identify the problem first and that'll get us to the right place.
1: Rather than skirting around it, dude, it's like we all can see it, you know. Are you going to say something
0: about Harry? No, no, no. I was just going to say, I mean, so like, again, I say I do research. That's what I do. Uh, (laughs) You were one of Boston's business journals, 40 Under 40. Oh, shit. How did 30, that be, um, how did that feel? And what are some of your best your, your favorite accomplishments um, within this industry?
2: Um that's a really nice question. Thank you, Brad. I appreciate it.
0: Um
2: so my biggest accomplishment or my favorite uh was the Lifetime Achievement Award that I got from the New England cannabis community, because that was actually voted on by the cannabis community. You know, so that directly came from the people. That meant, you know, more to me than anything else. Um, But the 40 under 40 was nice too, because I'm about to turn 40. So it came at a really good time. And it also came after my commission term. So that was really nice because it recognized, you know, after the commission, most regulators, you know, they go on to become lobbyists or they go on, you know, to go into private industry. I took kind of an unusual path. So it was really nice for that to be recognized.
0: Well, I mean, if I had a vote, I would vote for you, and I just met you. Okay, <laughs> so yeah, you're doing the right thing. You're doing I'm about to be
1: doing forty. Thanks, Barry. The right thing.
0: She's in her thirties, bro. No, nah, but, nah, but I going to say first off, she looks like twenty-eight. So I know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, Thank you. Well, I
1: think um, that's a, that's a great. Are you gonna say here? No, go ahead. Go ahead, guys. No, I was gonna say that's a, that's a great segment because I feel like a lot of people wonder like, what's next? And I know you just started your business, but like, where do you see yourself? with being so young working for the government you know influential in the in the cannabis community and cannabis regulation so like where do you see yourself 15 years from now 20 years from now
2: Um, I think I would really like to be a consultant for government so that I don't have to go through that stress, you know, of being a commissioner in a position like that again, and I can kind of pass the baton, you know, to to new people, but being there as um, a consultant or, you know, a mentor of some kind Is really nice. I've been able to do that for a lot of regulators now. There's so many more regulators of color now, by the way. The world has just changed a lot, you know, since I was appointed. I think now it's unheard of that you would have no black people on a commission. (laughs) People have come to their senses. So I've been able to work with a lot of those regulators and be like, I know what you're going through, you know, I, I know how you feel, and like answer a lot of their technical questions. Um, and that makes me really feel like my you know experience is is leading somewhere good and having good impact.
1: What advice would you have for regulators uh, regulators of color, especially I'm thinking about Connecticut, where they have two women of color, I believe on the on, the, on their on the commission. I think New York and New Jersey as well. So what advice would you have?
2: Um, I'll tell you the actual advice (laughs) that I gave them, which is that uh, you have to think about more than just your own agency. You have to be thinking about the legislators, the local level, the federal level. And if any one of those levels fails, you know, then the entire system will fail, So it's really important to stay in touch with every one of those levels. And then also just learning, you know, from other states. It's hard. It's a really busy job. So, um, you know, you don't get time to research every single state. But we actually, a bunch of us started a coalition called the Cannabis Regulators of Color Coalition with specifically that goal to be there for each other and share information, you know, and and be efficient. And I think, you know, people of color have been doing that forever, right? Like we're always in these situations where we have to stand up and for each other and lift each other up. So this is just another form of doing that.
0: That's great. That's great. So we're kind of towards the end of the show at this point. Um, But I would love to ask, what is your favorite form of consumption? Of
2: cannabis. Okay, you're gonna I gotta kick follow me that
0: too. I gotta follow.
2: I'm a very unsophisticated consumer, and I partially blame that I just grew up in an era where we did not know the strains. We just you had weed or you didn't have weed, and that was it. And I smoked out of joints and bowls, and that's just what I like, and that's what I stick with, and I don't really understand all of the products today even.
1: Are you more bull or more joint?
2: Um I'm not very good at rolling joints,
1: so it depends on born. who I'm around. I, knew it I, knew it. I don't know So now now my follow-up for that, you know, we have a manufacturer's license, one of the few black owned in the state of Massachusetts. If we were to produce a product for shailene title and put your face all over it what product would it be <laughs> oh wow <laughs>
2: um you're the expert i don't know what do you think it would be
1: but it has to be something that you can stand behind that's what it is like you really if we if we went on a marketing campaign and shailene had to put her face behind it and <laughs> go, go can, across can, can stage, i name it can
0: i name it what would you name it title wave obviously <laughs> 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 listen this is what you know, like, you know what I'm saying like it would have to be titled right, so it's is is it? delightful is it,
1: is it, what is it is it a certain strain is it an edible is it a drink baby you like drinks
2: I think it would just be a pre roll because I don't know how to roll and I could smoke it. You know what? I was going to say, like, something for a mom, you know, that's like nice and light, that's not going to knock me out. But if it's called Tidal Wave, it has to be something. They got naturally.
1: All right, we're working on that. We're working on that. We'll, we'll give you the details in the future here. <laughs> right,
0: right, right. Do we
1: have your permission, though? Can we
2: do that? <laughs> uh, that might be an offline <laughs>
0: we'll save that for after we'll save that for after Um, but yeah I mean Lucy do you have any more questions no no we're close on
1: time and certainly appreciate you jumping on with us for sure such
2: a delight you're leaders and pioneers and I know so many people look up to you thanks
1: for everything you do I appreciate that likewise likewise
0: well appreciate having you I feel like I can ask you questions all day because it's an easy topic I'm looking at the time I don't want to get I wanted to get cut off, um, so we do appreciate you coming. We would love to have you on the show again, um, or in some other form or fashion, or just meet you in general. Like I feel like.
2: Yeah, I will definitely way. come come to visit.
0: Absolutely. Perfect, perfect. All, All right,
1: right. thanks did, so much. See you soon. Thanks again. Thank Take you. care. All right, we'll talk to All
2: you. Right. Bye.